Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk. We have honest conversations with folk musicians. It is Cindy Howes. I am your host. Thanks for checking out the show today. Dennison Whitmer's music is kind and gentle. He's a skilled woodworker, an avid bird watcher, and until 2020, hadn't made a record for seven years. Growing up in Lancaster, Dennison was lucky enough to get some guitar lessons from Don Paris of the Innocence Mission, a well-loved indie folk band. This led to one of many lasting relationships in music as Don went on to produce some of Dennison's early projects. He also counts Sufjan Stevens and Rosie Thomas among his friends and longtime collaborators, with Sufjan signing Denny to his label and saying something to the effect of, I don't care if you never sell one album, releasing your music is a public service. Rosie Thomas, who is the only person, I guess besides me now, that calls him Denny, has experienced life and career in parallel, and he talks about what it's been like to have someone to grow up with like Rosie. Dennison has a beautiful skill in that he is able to truly notice and see others. He gets into how this skill has made him a better person and a better songwriter. His latest album, American Foursquare, is written in tribute to his hometown, Lancaster, PA, which he and his wife moved to in 2013 and where they have decided to raise their family. Dennison talks about raising kids, calling it the most creative thing that I can do. He's also been working on songs for a side project called Uncle Denny, where he wrote a song for every day of January of 2019. That project has produced some beautiful songs and is available on Bandcamp, a must-listen. I linked it uh, on the website. You can check it out. Um, All right, so we're going to take a listen to a song from Dennison Whitmer, Uh, from his latest album. So this is a song called Catalina Love, and then we'll get to our conversation with Dennison Whitmer on Basic Folk. Swing low And the 
garden I had planned was covered in the snow. How am I gonna let you know that I need your love? Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Denison. Do people call you Denison? Yeah. Everyone except okay. for my grandmother who called me Denny and my friend Rosie who calls me Denny because she knows that my grandmother used to call me Denny. So That's like very much like Rosie. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, cool. Well, uh, let's get to it. Um, yeah. So you grew up at, you grew up in and currently live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, you moved back to um, seven-ish years ago from Philly, which is like a lot of the focus on the new album American Foursquare. And I know that there were complicated feelings about moving back home, but how did you like growing up there and how do you think Lancaster shaped you? Oh, uh, well, I loved growing up here. I mean, I have no other uh, place to compare it to in terms of my childhood, but I had a pretty idyllic um relaxed suburban lifestyle childhood you know we i grew up in a in a town called Lidditz, pennsylvania which is a very quaint little downtown um and i'm one of four boys in my family so uh, i'm the third of four so i had two older brothers mm. to keep me occupied and then a little brother came along and you know we just my parents gardened in the in the backyard and we played baseball and we did you know normal uh suburban kid stuff <laughs> does one <laughs> of your brothers <laughs> does one of your brothers own a tavern um one of my brothers owns a coffee shop yeah it's called the green line cafe it's in okay. west philadelphia yeah before this interview we were emailing about um my friend dietrich and he's like yeah, yeah do they own a cafe so oh interesting it's, well it's there known. is a place called the whitmer tavern in lancaster that's what Pennsylvania. i thought yeah. Yes. So the Whitmer Tavern, um, a, as long as I've known it, has been out of business. Um, and then the building just sold and somebody's possibly reopening it. So maybe that's Was that any relation? About. I mean, I'm sure it is. There's Whitmer, no. Pennsylvania, which is not too far up the road. Okay. So, I mean, I'm, Did... I'm, you know, Swiss German uh, Mennonite, right? So I grew up Mennonite and that would be maybe the one part of my childhood since we're talking about childhoods that would be interesting to some people is that I, um, I grew up Mennonite, which a lot of people think is Amish, but it's not. The Amish church actually broke off the Mennonite church before they came to the United States. So I definitely went to, I went to a Mennonite elementary school. I went to a Mennonite high school. Um, and so that would be maybe one of the more formative things of my upbringing. Um, yeah. I was interested in thinking about, um, the Mennonite community. Um, because you are very, like, thoughtful, creative, sensitive, seems like um, emotionally open human being, um, emotional uh, man. Um, okay. So <laughs> how has uh, the Mennonite community helped cultivate that side of you? You know, I don't it, that's just like a guess that that is where maybe that comes from. And if not them, what do you think encouraged that side of you? You know, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, I, I don't think it was the, the church or the Mennonite upbringing because a lot of Mennonites actually, um, although the Mennonite church itself is very thoughtful and open and forgiving and um, 
has an emphasis towards social justice and, you know, is very engaged in the world in that way. Um, I don't think there's much of a press to show your emotions. I mean, I remember my grandmother like laughing when I was a kid, she would always cover her face and kind of keep her laugh to herself, you know, like she was a little bit more reserved. And my father was definitely more reserved as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, it could just be that, um, just the way my mom was like super hands-on and, you know, my brothers and I are all involved in the arts in some way and we're all relatively emotionally available. I don't know why. Um, my my mother told my wife that I'm the closest thing to a daughter that she has. So <laughs> I don't know what that means, <laughs> uh, but that's where we're at. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk more about your mom and like her parenting style? Yeah, I mean, well, how much do you want to get into? I'm not sure if she'll listen to this, huh? <laughs> and I hope she doesn't. But I mean, she she was she was great. I mean, she basically she um, was very enabling. You know, she taught us how to do everything. So like, I grew up doing my own laundry and vacuuming my room, and you know, I I sometimes joke that my mother, um, my my parents had employees, not children. You know, that's. <laughs> Like, they kept us busy, you know, but at the same time, I mean, they created four really able-bodied kids and, you know, we're all very um, DIY, you know, if, if there's something I want to accomplish, I usually try to figure out how to do it. Um, and so I've been very thankful for that. Uh, and I try to raise my kids, you know, the the same way, you know. Mm. Um, there, there's definitely a push and pull, you know, where it's like, I, I also tell my friends, like, you know my mom's very particular as well. So it's like, I have never really successfully done laundry or like chopped carrots in my mom's proximity. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I, I'll be like, my mom showed me how to do laundry every time I did laundry that I lived at home. You know what I mean? Right, so right. it's like, it's funny because like, at some point we do sort of like, mom, you know, you've taught us this a million times. You can let go. We can do it. Like, right. You know, and it's like, and, and the chopping carrots joke is kind of like if my mom says, hey, yeah, can you chop those carrots? I'll say, sure. And I'll start to chop them the way she's already taught me. And then she'll be like, oh, I kind of wanted them a little bit more like. And I'm like, oh, I have to refine, you know. Mm. So there's definitely a bar that uh, I have to hit. <laughs> but right, right. Like yeah. perfectionism <laughs> yeah, totally. runs rampant. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so before you were in music, you were working at your family's greenhouse and you're now a woodworker. So we heard a little bit about like some of like learning those traits, but what did the process of like learning those trades look like in practice? Well, my family owned a greenhouse business. That's how I, I kind of defaulted into working at a greenhouse. Was um, it like vegetables or flowers? Um, no, it was a wholesale. It was a wholesale and, um, and then some of the time that I was there, we had a retail space as well. And it was it was flowers um, and vegetable plants. But, you know, we didn't sell any produce. We were strictly where people would come in the spring and the fall to buy um, their plants. Like their landscapers? Gardens. Landscapers, yeah. Um, uh, although we ended up, when it was just wholesale business, we would sell to other greenhouse companies who were open to the public. So we were just... I. It's funny, you know, my, my wife is really into gardening now. And um, I don't recognize some of the plants because I only ever saw them as infant plants. You know, I'd be spending nine hours a day watering uh, in like a 110 degree greenhouse. And I, as soon as the plants got big enough to sell, they would be sold. So I never saw them as mature plants. 
Mm. And so it's funny to me now to be like, oh, I recognize the foliage of that plant, but I don't know why. And then I'm like, oh, it, that's what it looks like. And it's like, you know, how many years later, 20 years later, you know, I'm I'm finally starting to learn more about the plants when they're that's in, hilarious. Yeah. When they're actually in, in a garden. So. so where was music in your early life in terms of like who was playing you albums who was playing instruments around you and like what were you gravitating towards when you started to like develop your own taste? Yeah. Um, well, my oldest brother, Douglas, was kind of, um, he kind of set the bar for the rest of the brothers in terms of um, his creativity. He, he's, he's kind of unparalleled in terms of like, he's a musician, he's a painter, like he's just very creatively active. And he encouraged me to buy a guitar for my 16th birthday. Um, and so that's what I did. And then, you know, he was always in a band, he was always doing something like that. So then I tried to start writing my own songs. And it started as poetry, and then it kind of morphed into songwriting. And then um, I never really played cover songs. So I just kind of started writing songs the day that I got a guitar. Yeah. Um, and from there, um, there's a there's a local band here in Lancaster called The Innocence Mission. And they were like I think they're A&M. more than a local band. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> yes, they're they're amazingly talented. Um and they're you know, known all over the world. But at the time, you know, I was just a a 17-year-old kid who was taking guitar lessons from the guitar player of their band. Um his name is Don Paris. And um I'm really thankful to him because he basically took me under his wing and said you know, I think you have an interesting way of playing guitar. Maybe guitar lessons isn't the best thing for you. Maybe we should record some songs instead. And so he recorded my first album and helped me, um, you know, shape the songs into um, kind of produced the songs and helped me learn arranging. And that's cool. Um, yeah. Um. So a couple of questions about. Oh, I'm sorry if you can hear my dog barking. There's a That's fly okay. in the house and he is upset. <laughs> That's all right. It. He's been barking for the last hour. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, what did Don find interesting about your guitar playing? I honestly don't know. You don't know? I, I don't know. I He never said to me, like, this is what I find interesting about your guitar playing. But I think it was probably that I was kind of finding my own way through the instrument and it could have also just been that as he taught me how to recognize different chord shapes and patterns maybe he felt like um he was removing some of what i what of my exploration of the instrument and maybe he thought Mm -hmm. it was just more interesting to let me kind of find what worked you know yeah because i definitely never i just still don't even know what key i'm playing and i still don't know what chords i'm playing i mean i recognize chord shapes and things now from being a musician for mm. over 20 years but i i don't really let that guide the way i write i saw you um comment on your I think it was your early performance in general, but of your early guitar playing, you said young Dennison played guitar harder and with a pick. Um, <laughs> so how did it feel to like start playing guitar and how has your connection to the instrument changed over time? Yeah. Um, well, I definitely started as a strummer. You know, I, I, um, I, 
I didn't have enough control of my right hand to play finger style, probably until um, I was a few records in, you know, to feel comfortable playing finger picking patterns and things like that. Um, and I don't know, it could have just been what I was listening to that influenced my style. I just kind of morphed into a finger style guitar player, and that's what I feel most comfortable with now. Like, I don't really, I don't really enjoy strumming my guitar. It doesn't really bring me much. Uh, I don't feel emotionally connected to it when I'm strumming. Mm. Uh, I feel much better when I'm playing with my thumb. And, um, and I wonder why that the, is. I don't know. Somehow the pick feels like a separation to me as well. Hmm. Even though, you know, I, I, I have a horrible habit of nail biting. And I think I'd be, I think I'd have a better sound if I was playing with my, my nails. Like if I grew my nails out and I could actually play, um, but every time I've tried one of those picks you put on your thumb to kind of replicate the sound of a fingernail, it never sounds right to me. So I just, um, and to be honest, I, I, I don't want to throw myself under the bus, but I am a little bit of a path of least resistance type of musician where it's like, if it's working, I will take that path. And if it's not working, I don't really push myself too hard to try to do something that's not feeling good, you know? So, um, just Who like knows? the human body. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Although, you know, I used to be a very active runner. I used to run a lot on tour. It's what kept me sane. And um, mm. since moving back to Lancaster, I have not been running quite the way I used to. Um, mm. And I don't, it's not, it's not for my lack of uh, desire to push through the times when it doesn't feel good. It's just my schedule and my lifestyle. I haven't made time for it, to be honest. Right. It's, no, it's nobody's fault but my own. Do you hear me just trying to come up with excuses and I'm not going anywhere? So the reality <laughs> is it's my own fault. <laughs> well, maybe you could um, buy yourself a heart rate monitor and then you'll have to run because you have yeah. a heart rate monitor. That's true. That's true. And then it'll be more like a video game than anything. The thing is, it's like my wife is my wife has like a running, like a GPS running watch now that she uses and she mm -hmm. likes to track her miles and everything like that. And I usually just go, I'm going to go for a run for an hour and I don't keep track of where I'm going. I don't turn any, I don't have a particular path that I take when I go. I don't, um, I don't pace myself, you know, I use it as a way to open up my mind. Like I, I feel like I get my best thinking done when I'm, when I hit that runner's stride yeah. and I'm like in a place where my body's just functioning and my, my brain gets to just kind of open up. That's cool. Yeah. I wanted to ask another question about Don. Um, mm -hmm. So, like you were saying, he produced some of your music and he played on some of your music and was kind of like encouraging uh, when you were a young person, gave you a few guitar lessons. What was it like to have like a mentor like Don? Um, I've been thinking a lot recently about mentors in general. So, like, what has your experience with mentors in general been like? Well, I... I mean, I feel just really grateful. That's really my takeaway is that I uh, I think Don and I made my first record when he was 31 and I was 20 or 19. Sorry, I was 19 and he was 31. And then I think about myself at 31. Now that I'm 44, I think about 31-year-old Denison and I'm like, what if I recorded like a 20-year-old kid? Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like... I want to believe that I would have, you know, and, and 
but it did it did make me kind of reapproach the way I um, the way I relate to like uh, to younger musicians, you know. And and I try I always try to be available and encouraging. And um, I try. There's a few different musicians that I've kind of tried to help uh, guide along into a, a music career, you know. Um, and most has your, because has your people approach... have done it for me, you know. Has your approach been more like um, creatively encouraging or like um, like business professionally encouraging? I think it just depends on on um, it depends on the person, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I mostly it's just been business, and knowing that now twenty years in, I've got lots of connections with people who can make things happen for mm-hmm. musicians that they can't do on their own. Um, so, uh, and, you know, usually what I'm drawn to about someone's music is not something I want to change. It's something that I find unique about them, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to amplify their voice in some way. Um, good so point. there's a musician that I started working with about four years ago. Uh, his name's Angelo D'Augustine. He, he's oh. on, he's on Asthmatic <laughs> Kitty now. I love now. him so much. <laughs> yeah. He's a great, he's a great musician. And so... He kind of came through a recording studio that I was that I was part owner of uh, in New York a few years back, and um, he just didn't really have an idea of how to make make uh, a career in music, and so I managed him for a while. And then when I had my sec, when my wife and I had our second kid, we were just not sleeping and not functioning. And I just said to him, Angelo, I love you so much. I just can't. I can't in good faith manage you. I feel like I'm just going to fail you. And in some ways getting out of the way of, of that was really good because then mm. he was able to um, meet a new manager and I was able to introduce him to Sufjan and um, get him on the label. And it's been awesome to see his career. Yeah, good call. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know it was you that was behind that young man. Yeah, he's uh, uh, from, well. From I mean, beginning. he's behind himself. I, I can only sure. take credit in the sense that, um, you know, he was he was open enough to let me help him along. That's so, so great. Yeah. So you mentioned you didn't learn to play other people's songs. So you immediately just like started writing your own from the beginning. And I think you were 16 years old. Mm-hmm. Kept a journal, wrote songs like from those entries. So now as someone who kind of like stepped away from music for about seven years, you've, uh, from what I understand, you've had to like relearn, and I, you correct me if I'm wrong, like relearn of like what of, a lot of what came second nature, like when it came to playing and writing. Um, so how do you relate to the writer that you first were while you were like relearning? Like how do you think you're a different player, a different writer after rediscovering the musician in you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, uh, hopefully it's not a cheesy metaphor, but I mean, I think all of life is kind of like tree, tree rings, right? You kind of grow out, you know, in a, but I think you kind of circle back around over the same themes. At least I can, I'm speaking for myself. That's, that's the way I am. Um, and I think there's a, there's an openness when you're, when I first started music, you know, I, all, all I wanted to do was just write songs, you know, I, and I didn't have like any filter telling me this song is good or this song is bad or just whatever. It was just, I would just write. 
and let it be what it is. Um, and I think that that's a very free place to create in. And then I think as your um, as your career progresses, and you're given a budget, and you have a certain amount of time, or you you know there's there's a numbers game that kind of ends up uh, entering. Um, and for better or worse, you know it, it did enter my mind at some points in my career, and I kind of had to fight it back and go, okay, well I don't want to think about. I don't want to think about those those numbers. I just want to, you know, create as selfishly as possible. And so that's that's something that I've really tried to focus on with every record I make is to try to create something for myself and just be very pleased personally mm. with what I'm making, and um, and just hope that uh, that it translates. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. But um, that's okay. You know, it's not going to change the fact that I'm going to make more music. Um, I think more recently with the seven year break, you know, if I can only speak, if I can speak about my new record, it's that I, um, I actively tried to sever the need for music to pay me like as, as music, as the digital music, you know, industry kind of grew, it was really unclear to me where my finances were going to come from with music mm -hmm. aside from film and TV placements, which is kind of like playing the lottery. Like sometimes you get one, sometimes you don't, you know, right. You can't, I couldn't see myself raising my family on the income that I was making without being away all the time. And I, that wasn't an option for me. I didn't want to be touring all the time. So I kind of, I started a carpentry business to try to just say, okay, well this is where I make money. And if music makes money, I'll put that money back into making more music. And if it makes extra, then I'll do something fun with that. And if not, you know, I just won't sweat it. Um, and being a carpenter for, you know, several years, my brain was just really um, locked into that type of creativity, which is like an analytical creativity. Carpentry mm -hmm. for me is not emotional. I'm not a wood sculptor. You know, I'm not out there trying to make something that... Um, is new and original when it comes to woodworking. Like I do historical millwork yeah. and I build things that I prefer designers to give me a design and I like to I like to build their design, you know. Rosie Thomas has been your friend and collaborator for over 20 years and you wrote a song for her on your latest yeah. album, yeah. Roseanne. <laughs> Lovely song. How has her creativity and performance made you a better musician? And also, like, what has it been like to have someone like Rosie to grow alongside in your life and career? Oh, wow. Well, so um, Rosie, Rosie and I toured together from, like, really, really early on. We just ended up kind of having um, a, an emotional connection and we – um, struck up our friendship and just made a lot of music together and she's taught me she's taught me to be true to myself you know she's definitely taught me to to follow um, follow my instincts musically um, and and the ways that she's done that are, are not just like just being an encouraging friend and kind of saying like I really love this song but like you know maybe we arrange it a little bit like this or work on it this way or like this first doesn't make any sense or something like that. I mean, just talking uh, about mm -hmm. our creativity. Um, but then also, you know, she had me arrange some songs for her and I had never done that before. 
Um, so when she made her album, These Friends of Mine, I worked on that and recorded a bunch of the songs and um, had to explore harmonies and like just look at them uh, externally. You know, it's like not something that I actually wrote. I can just think about this as just an arrangement. And that making that record taught me a lot about arranging my own music, about mm. how to step back from it and go, okay, you know, because when I'm playing guitar and singing, I'm thinking about what I'm singing. I'm, I'm such a lyrics person. I'm just, I get so wrapped up in lyrics. If I listen to music and the lyrics don't connect with me, I, I lose interest. That's just the way I am. So when I, 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 when I'm arranging my own music, I really have to kind of like separate myself from it and go, okay, just on a musical level, what's happening here and like what can help boost the song and help push it along and make it more interesting. Um, and I feel like Rosie really helped me see that. Yeah. We used to play her song Wedding Day oh, on yeah. my uh, college radio show. It was a folk show in Boston and it was like like a bigger it was a bigger station than a smaller college station. And it was like one of the most requested songs. Oh really? That's in great. our entire show, like for all four years I was there. Um, another thing about Rosie is that you did this well it's not really about Rosie but she brought it up you did this like really beautiful so first of all like your social media is awesome like oh thank you I uh, I love what you write and I love like your tone and everything um, you did this beautiful post on Mother's Day for your wife Jenny and Rosie commented I love your family and I love how you truly see your wife you've always had a knack at noticing others it's why you're one of my favorite friends and why you write the beautiful songs you do. So, oh my God, if anyone ever wrote that about me, I'd be like, shut everything down. So I'm down. hiding That's behind it. the pop filter so that I can like wipe <laughs> the tear out of my eye so you don't see it. So <laughs> yeah. anyways, it's a yeah. little dusty in here, um, but such a beautiful sentiment from a lovely friend, obviously. Where do you think that ability to see like others comes from and how has it made you a better partner, parent, friend, and if at all, like a better musician. Oh man, you're really landing some good questions here. A lot of home runs in this one, yeah, Dennison. So many, so many. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I mean, I I am a pretty observant person. I'm I'm a I'm a people person by nature, and I'm also a helper. You know, I don't really follow any of the Enneagram things and I don't do a lot of like personality tests, but I do know that I am a helper when I see somebody in need or I, if I, if I see a connection that can be made or two people who I really think need to know each other, I will go out of my way to introduce those people. And I have the, um, have the benefit of having traveled all over the world and having met a lot of people and, um, I don't know why, but people connect very easily to me emotionally. Like a lot of people connect. I'm the guy that everyone hugs, right? Like I meet somebody and I hang out with them for like half an hour and they always go in for the hug when we leave. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, baby. It's just, I like, the, but I like how people work. I like to talk to people about what's on their mind and just figure out um, what they're going through and what's, yeah, what's going on. So maybe it's, maybe it's that. I don't know. Um, I, I think I have to work, I have to co consciously remember to kind of like slow down and ask questions. You know, that's something that I taught myself years ago was just to try to ask questions. And it's interesting. You learn so much, you know, I, I think 
when I was 19, I followed a girlfriend to Japan. I, I, I dated, uh, I dated my high school girlfriend was a Japanese exchange student and I followed mm. her j to Japan. Um, and I lived there for about six months and it was my first time outside of the United States. I, I had no wow. idea what I was getting into. Right. Like, yeah. And I think that that trip taught me a lot about empathy and understanding that, you know, um, people are pretty similar in nature to, you know, desires like human needs, you know, like just, and that the world is a very big place, you know, like, and, and places operate, you know, differently, subtly differently. But, you know, the way I was raised is just one way of being raised. And so um, that was the beginning of wanting to travel, you know, and then being able to travel with music kind of, um, kind of helped me uh, widen that, hopefully widen that empathy, just in the sense that I've been in a lot of situations where maybe it would be uncomfortable, but if you're open to it and interested in different cultures and things, you kind of just, you learn so much, you know. Um, I have this long-winded answer. Um, That's then, okay. I you know. have a million questions. Um, I do have a question about... My stomach keeps growling. Do you hear it? <laughs> no, I don't hear it. <laughs> I wonder if the microphone that uh, I skipped lunch today by accident uh, and I ate like I, I pounded like a half a pint of blueberries before I came down here and turned the microphone on. And my stomach's just like, I love blueberries. I'm going to work on them. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out where to go because I have a question that kind of relates to that, but not really. So, OK, never mind. We'll get to that one later. Um, OK. Just from a narrative perspective in terms of like stepping away from music, it seems like you and your wife decided to move back to Lancaster to be close to your parents when your dad was sick. Um, Does that line up? Uh, no, it wasn't quite, it wasn't quite like that. My, my dad okay. passed away before I moved back to Lancaster. Um, okay. my, my dad was sick around the time I was making my album carry the weight, which was like 2008 is when I made that okay. record and he passed away uh, in between um uh we passed away in 2012 so um we were still living in Philadelphia at that time um no we moved back to Lancaster um s somewhat because you know our son uh our oldest son was um well, I'm trying to think how our our we weren't in total agreement about actually moving back to Lancaster, you know, if I'm if I'm being honest, you know, I wasn't ready to move because I really enjoyed living in the city and I loved the house that we had. I worked really hard on making it uh the home that I wanted to live in and I I'm a city person through and through. Mm -hmm. Um I like the energy of of being in a city and um but I was on tour quite a bit and um that was fine when we didn't have kids, but as our son was getting older, there was a really brutal winter where my wife was just like stuck in the house. I think I was in, I think I was in Europe for like five weeks and she couldn't go anywhere and she was feeling really frustrated and um, really cooped up. And so we talked about it and we said, okay, well, let's move somewhere, but where do we want to go? And Lancaster seemed like the best 
fit because I have a lot of connections here, having grown up here, and it's mm-hmm. proximity to Philadelphia is good because I can take the train to the city in an hour. Where's um, your wife from? She's from Charlottesville, Virginia. Yeah. So further away. Further away. Um, <laughs> and we didn't want to go to Charlottesville just because um, it wasn't the the right fit for our family, mm-hmm. and um, she didn't want to go back to her hometown. Um, so yeah, we ended up choosing Lancaster, um, and I was actually about to make a Christmas album. I had already scheduled the studio time, set everything up to make a Christmas album, and then we had decided to move, and I had to put that on hold, and then one thing led to another, and then I ended up not making music for a while. And, you know, we we worked through all that. Uh, the good thing is that we were able to talk about it and kind of move. I was able to move through some of my resentments, um, which I definitely had, you know, and struggled with. Um, but I have to say, retrospectively, I'm very thankful to be here. Um, it is the right place for us at this time in our lives. And... Um, I'm thankful that I'm thankful that we made the move. Um, and I, and I mean that not in like a, you know, um, acceptance is the final stage of grief kind of way. I mean it. in like, I found an acceptance in this decision and I found a peace in this decision mm-hmm. um, because I'm experiencing a lot of joy being here. And creatively, I didn't really, I creatively, I didn't know how much I needed to go inward and not outward. And in the city, I was just looking at what's around me and I was kind of pulling from like all of this, uh, you know, stimulation of city life and friends. And maybe, it was, maybe it was also a phase of life too. Yeah, but yeah. That was the source of my creativity. And then when we got here, I was like, Oh man, I'm so busy with just every day. Most of my time is, is spoken for with my family and when I had creative time, I, there was nowhere to go for ex, external stimulation. It was like that long, hard look in the mirror, and I'm like, well, "What am I? What am I going to write about?" No what one am wants I that. Create, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody really wants it, but it's actually kind of cathartic. And if you're willing to go there, you learn a lot about yourself. I mean, I did a tour when I was—I don't know—I must have been like 24. I had this old van that I bought off my parents. And I outfitted it to have like a bed in the back and store all my stuff in it. And I embarked on this like self-booked tour for like two or three months all over the United States. And the the radio broke on the second day. And I was too cheap to replace it. And I did 25,000 miles in that van with no radio. Some of my drive days were like eight hours long. And I, at the time, was like, I'm never going to be able to handle this, you know. But retrospectively, I think that that tour somehow fixed something in my brain, like in this in in the silence that it required, like the deep mm. thought and just like just being in my head. I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes that can be a pretty dark place and there's like no checks and balances and you can really go off the rails. Right. But it was really good for me. And I, as I was writing this new record and as I was trying to start to explore my music create musical creativity again here in this house i actually thought about that time and i was like i got some of my my most like uh some of my strongest mental breakthroughs like personally happened 
when I had mm. no nothing to go on other than just my own thoughts, you know. And so I tried to focus on that. And yeah, I think silence is important. And I think I've I've learned that again this this last year, as we were all pushed into, you know, quarantine. And don't get me wrong, I welcome a lot of distractions. Like I love. Uh, there's a lot of TV shows I love. There's a lot of podcasts I listen to. I do all of that. But I did at some point this year have to make a conscious decision to not engage with screens and really check mm-hmm. out. And with my kids, you know, I definitely, um, they don't have phones. You know, they're nine and they're five. You know, they, 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 have, they have regulated screen time, you know. And I don't have regulated screen time because I'm regulating my screen time. So... <laughs> Uh, you know, my wife and I talked about it and we said, well, if we're going to regulate our kids screen time, then we should regulate our own as well. And so we've um, we've consciously tried to get away from our devices um, as much as we can to. Um, to try to, yeah, think to just think. And I see my kids' creativity and, like, they draw all these awesome pictures and they have, like, this all this imaginary play and all this fun stuff going on. And I think, I want that. I want to do that. <laughs> Obviously, I have all these responsibilities, too. Like, there's just yeah, so yeah. much, so much, you know, so much about my life is different than my kids in terms of, like, that I have to make money and I have to make meals <laughs> and I have to wake up. You know, it's like, you know, but... At the same time, no one's telling me I have to sit and scroll Instagram. You know, that's like the thing. You know, I don't have to do it. Yeah. Uh, I I like it for catching up with my friends. I like seeing what's going on. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think I think I dosed a little too heavy on some of the the um, the screen last year. That's why. I yeah, there's just a um, a point in scrolling for me recently where I was like. I don't even know any of the people or like care about any of the things that I'm seeing right now. I'm just right, like digging, right. digging, digging, digging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, we're not going to find it in Instagram. No, no. Find it in silence. Yeah. Or with each other, you know, and that's the one thing that I think um, has been a good reminder with quarantine too, is that mm. people are seeking community or desire to be in nature again and, you know, mm-hmm. for a musician, it's slightly terrifying because I'm like, well, how are people going to find out about my music if I don't put it out there or advertise about it or anything? But, you know, personally, it's actually very exciting because it's like, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I can just do whatever I want and, <laughs> and not have to worry about the algorithms, you know? It eats me alive some days. I mean, and, and the, you know, the, the label manager at Asthmatic Kitty will as much tell you that early on with the record, you know, I was really trying to figure out how the music business changed, you know, because I was just used to releasing CDs and vinyl. And I mean, when I started, mm. I was releasing tapes and everybody's migrating over to Spotify, you know, and I definitely got into a place with my mind where I was like, okay, so if Spotify is the answer to getting your music heard and you have to get on playlists and you have to do all this stuff, it's like, how do you even accomplish all this? It just seemed like this mountain that was like impossible to climb, you know? And then you're Mm -hmm. like, if Spotify favors your music and then it becomes like part of the algorithm, then more people discover it. But if it doesn't, then the algorithm works against you. And that thing really messed my head up for like a good, Mm -hmm. for a good couple months. I was in like a, 
Like, how do I share my music with people? Like, other than just my reach without reminding people over and over again, you know? Because I don't want to do that either, you know? It's very weird time to <laughs> So let's music. talk about something. Let's talk about something that's like exactly the opposite of that. Yeah, sounds good. Uncle Denny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Experimental that's... self-relief project where you wrote and recorded a song into a single mic every day for the month of January, and then you put it on Bandcamp without overthinking it. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like there was a lot of like free association writing with this project. It sounds like everything about this project was free association. Um, how has that changed you, like the way that you approach any project or any problem in your life? Um, well, that was that was a great exercise in songwriting for me, the Uncle Denny project. And that was an accidental project. I, I sat down on January 1st, because I had this microphone kind of set up similar to the way it is right now in our conversation. And I just said to myself, oh, I'm just going to write a song about the new year. So then I wrote, I wrote a song. And then the next day, I came back downstairs and I was like, I'm just going to try to write another song, you know, and really not overthink it, especially on the heels of making a record where I thought through every note that's played on that record, you know, and I worked on it for so long. I labored over American Foursquare for several years and I'm thankful that I did. Actually, it's, you know, I'll digress for a second and say, I listened to American Foursquare today in preparation for this interview because I never listened to my own records. But I decided I should just listen to it again so that I could speak, you know, a little bit more accurately about it or at least, you know, c connect with the songs again in a way that I felt like I could talk about it. And um, I'm really proud of that work. I'm really, really proud of it. I, I feel like um, in terms of a career, every once in a while as an artist, you get to materialize what you hear in your head entirely. It doesn't always happen, but I feel like with American Foursquare, I got there like closer by percentages than maybe any other record I've ever made. And so I'm really, really happy with it. But that said, you know, it was so much work. And Uncle Denny became this kind of just, like you said, free association, like a little bit different part of my personality that maybe people don't know as well, you know, where I'm just writing about whatever's on my mind and telling stories about things that happened to me on tour or just writing about current events um, and putting it out before I could overthink it, before I could think, like, is this a good song or is this song bad? Or, you know, I didn't want to think about any of that. I just wanted it to be um, an exercise in songwriting. And in some ways, I wanted other musicians to hear it and maybe say to themselves, like, I don't have to be so precious about this stuff all the time. And there's a time and a place for it, but maybe it's just good to create, you know, just be creative, you know, mm -hmm. with no agenda. Um, and so, yeah, it started, it started as no agenda, but trust me around January 15, where I was like, okay, I've got a song a day, you know, I'm going to keep going with this. You know, I was pretty loose with myself in the sense that I gave myself days off. I wasn't like, it has to be a song a day, has to, has to, has to, you know, sometimes like both of my kids have birthdays in January. Like I wasn't writing songs those days and you know, there were other things that were going the, on. Uh, not, uh, it, what year was it? Was it, it wasn't this, it wasn't this January. No, it was January, 2020. Yeah. January, 2021. It was like, 
every week something crazy was happening. Oh, so totally. that you didn't have to deal with the insurrection or anything. No, but I didn't there's have to still write about lots the going on. Yeah. <laughs> and Jeez. you know, when January 2021 rolled around, I did I set my microphone up late December and and I was like, am I going to make another Uncle Denny record, you know? And I came down here and nothing came to me and I thought, well, no, now's not the right time. I do feel it again, though. I've, I, I, over the last few months, I've felt another Uncle Denny record coming on. I don't know if it'll happen and to what capacity it will be. You know, if it'll be a song a day type of thing or if it will be some other type of instantaneous, you know, release. <laughs> but it's, that's one of the beautiful things about digital music, too, is that you, you can release things really quickly, you know. And, yeah. And, um, I guess, you know, it's um, it's also the scary thing about music, too, is that, you know, things, like you said, you know, you're scrolling and you don't even know why you're scrolling. When you're um, a p part of the attention economy, which I don't really love being part of the attention economy, this, the scary part of it is like, well, laboring over a record for five years and hoping anybody hears it is really scary right now. But then doing a record in a month and putting it out, it's like, well, maybe somebody will hear it, maybe they won't. Like, it's way less stressful. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Parenthood. On the Resistance podcast, you had a couple of really interesting things to say about being a parent and talking about that, like, you've had those moments where you've been really frustrated mm -hmm. and sadly resentful of sure. being a parent. But um, on the flip side of that, I think it's really cool what you're saying about you say I really believe that children are the most creative thing I can do and what I mean by that it's a collaboration like no other collaboration I've been a part of and by that here's what I think you mean and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong it, it means that you have to be creative in the way that you react and think about how they're reacting to you like how they're showing you themselves um how have you been able to like channel such deep thinking as a parent and like push aside the resentment and cultivate like patience and awe with your kids? Well, I mean, that's a, it, it just depends what day you catch me, you know, <laughs> a <laughs> so, few months ago, I was really in answer. a spell for, for a couple of weeks where I just could not, get a free moment to just get a thought out, you know? And, um, my wife and I have tr been trying to give each other personal time, as much personal time as we can, when we can. Um, but at the same time, we really love doing things together as a family. So sometimes we'll opt out of our own personal time for, for family time, you know? <laughs> um, so it's, it's balance. It's definitely balance. Um, in terms of parenting, I I still stand by that that statement that it is the most creative thing I've ever done, um, and that's because you know when I'm writing a song, ultimately I'm shaping it you know from start to finish. Or I think a painter would say the same thing. You know, you're painting something. You're you control the brush. You know, you know where things are going to land. And if you don't like it, you erase it and you start over. You know. Um, but with kids, you know, 
there's free will. There's this personality attached to it that says, like, I don't want to do that. I want to do this other thing. And then you have to kind of go into your own moral code and say, okay, well, this other interest that my kid is expressing, like, does it rub against my moral code? You know, it might not be exactly what I want to do, but if it's something they love to do, then I'm going to encourage it, you know, if it's if it's not negatively impacting their life. Like, and, did that come from, like, a like a book you read or, like, and your experiences like being a kid that you remember? No, it didn't. I don't know where it came from. I, that's a good question. I don't know where it came from. Maybe just a conversation I had with my wife where I, where we were like, what kind of parents do we want to be? You know, and I, I have to say my parents were really cool when it came to, you know, I didn't go to college. My parents didn't pressure me to go to college. You know, they they knew I wanted to make music and in, in um in my senior year of high school, I made a tape, you know, that maybe 10 people on the planet have ever heard, you know, but it was like part of my school project and they helped me manufacture it, you know, and they, they really pushed me in the directions that I wanted to go, you know? Mm. Um, and so maybe it was that, maybe it was that knowing that I had, um, had been encouraged myself to just explore what my interests were, um, was, was what, helps me do that with my own children i don't know Hmm. um but but the rewards are just i mean it's so incredible to watch um to watch a child go like really deep into their interests you know and to and to foster that to be like oh you want to go you want to go there with this like my 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 oldest son is just obsessed with maps you know obsessed like loves geography and so we just keep buying atlases and what atlas do you want next? Let's get it. Like, and I have learned so much about world geography and, you know, understanding um, uh, population growth and differentials in this, the, you know, farming and difference. Like, I have learned so much from his interests and it's been so fun for me. It's like delegating a part of my mind. <laughs> I don't know what else to say it. You know, it's 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 really it's really incredible. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right, we got one more thing that we have to do. Okay. Before we wrap it up. Sure, let's go for it. It's called the lightning round. Ooh, lightning round! I don't. I'm not very good at these. We'll see. No one is. Okay, okay. that's good to know. I feel like I'm not. <laughs> Competing against anything. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we go. Um, first album you bought with your own money? Uh, Benny Hester, When God Ran, on cassette. I was deep into Christian music when I was a kid because that's what my parents let us buy. Um, so I used to mow the lawn and listen to Benny Hester. That's cute. It, yeah. What was the last book you read? Uh, the last book that I read was, well, I'm currently rereading A Prayer for Owen Meany, which holds mm. up really well. Um, I was not sure because I read it in high school, um, but uh, I didn't remember it very well. And um, it's great. My favorite All book, right. though, of the last couple of years was The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Okay. I, uh, that was incredible. And H is for Hawk. That was a great one, too. Ooh, for a bird watcher. Yeah, the falconer, yeah. All right, a couple more. Flying or invisibility? Ooh, flying. This is the last one, Dennison. Okay. 
Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Oh, okay. Sweden <laughs> in August is pretty magical. Really?、Um, yeah, I played a festival in Sweden、um, in August, and I was I was staying at this farmhouse, like about a mile up the road from、um, from where the festival site was. And I walked、mm-hmm. back and forth every day, and those walks were just very indelible. Like sweet light, you know, late, late in the evening, you know, but、mm-hmm. far enough north where it's still light out. You know, the sun's just basically hovering right above the trees, and the fields were golden. I mean, it, that、oh, that's、yeah. very indelible. Now, I will say there are parts of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that look like that. Like we we are very lucky here when it comes to beautiful farmland.、Yeah. Um, so there, or.、Um, You know, I have memories of being at、um, some Buddhist temples in Kyoto, in Japan, when I was there,、mm-hmm. which I can just conjure up those images very easily. Just the aesthetic, and just、um, yeah, everything about it—the implementation of sand and water and flowers and、um, just the color of the buildings, the architecture. Yeah. Wow. I give you two answers.、Oh. Sorry, those are. I mean, you know what? I、uh, but can I give you one more? There's yeah, one more. Yeah. My favorite place in the United States is the redwood forests. Um, and I have to go there every few years. It's like a water level. Is that Muir? I have to check Muir Woods.、In. Muir Woods is uh is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. But you but know the、redwood、whole avenue、different. of the giants, the whole way down, um, just north of San Francisco. There's just so many、mm. great. And the Oregon coast too. I mean, so in November 2019,、uh, when I was finishing American Foursquare,、uh, my wife and my kids flew out to Seattle to meet me at the end of the recording session. We rented a car and we drove to San Francisco, and we drove the coast. We just we just drove the whole way down the Oregon coast and. There's parts of the Oregon coast that are just all sand dunes, you know. It's just it, it, it's pretty, but it's it's mostly sand dunes.、Mm-hmm. And I was telling, I was telling Jenny, like, you know, you, you don't understand. Like, the Oregon coast is beautiful. Like, you get farther south than Oregon, it's it becomes rocky. It's just, it's like no other place, you know, that we get to have out here on the East Coast. Maybe Maine is similar, but we、uh, ended up kind of like chasing a sunset and turning a corner on the coastal highway, and there was just like all these rocks out in the ocean、oh, wow. and a sunset, and she just starts crying, <laughs> you know, like it's, because it's so beautiful. It's just so beautiful. We pulled over and we were like, the kids were just kind of indifferent, you know, so we were like, look, guys, you can just play on your iPads for a minute. We are going to sit here and just take it in, and so. If you haven't been to the the coast of Oregon, it's a must. It's a must. Okay. Yeah. I've been to three of those four places, or one of those four places. So I have、okay. some traveling to do. You do. Do it. Yeah. Send me pictures. All right. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Dennison, thank you so much. It was so awesome. To, yeah. Thank to talk you. To you. It was great to talk to you too.
Basic Folk This Week was produced by Laura McCarthy. Alex Stanton of Townspeople composes our music. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy House, and you can listen wherever you get podcasts or at our website, basicfolk.com. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.